Our scripture reading this evening is from Deuteronomy chapter 27. The bulletin says 28, but that was my error. It's Deuteronomy chapter 27, which is on page 212 of your Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse 1. Then Moses and the elders of Israel charged the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today. So it shall be on the day when you cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God gives you, that you shall set up for yourself large stones and coat them with lime, and write on them all the words of this law, When you cross over so that you may enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord the God of your fathers promised you. So it shall be when you cross the Jordan, you shall set up on Mount Ebal these stones, as I am commanding you today, and you shall coat them with lime. Moreover, you shall build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not wield an iron tool on them. You shall build the altar of the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer on it burnt offerings to the Lord your God. And you shall sacrifice peace offerings and eat there, and rejoice before the Lord your God. You shall write on the stones all the words of this law very distinctly. Then Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all Israel, saying, Be silent and listen, O Israel. This day you have become a people for the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the Lord your God and do his commandments and his statutes which I command you today. Moses also charged the people on that day, saying, When you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. For the curse, these shall stand on Mount Ebal, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. The Levites shall then answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed is he who dishonors his father or mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who misleads a blind person on the road, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who distorts the justice due an alien, orphan, and widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who lies with his father's wife, because he has uncovered his father's skirt, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who lies with any animal, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who lies with his sister, the daughter of his father or of his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who lies with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who strikes his neighbor in secret, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who accepts a bribe to strike down an innocent person, and all the people shall say, 
Amen. Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. Congregation, we've been considering together in our evening service the Heidelberg Catechism, which as you'll recall, I've entitled The Path of Life. That the, the Catechism and our instructor through that Catechism is taking us by the hand, as it were, and leading us down this path of life. A path which leads to life. But as we've experienced in these, in these sermons, the path begins in a very dark, dark place. And you might say this evening... Uh, we come to the, to the, to the lowest place uh, in, that, in that journey. You'll remember that the Catechism has said that our only comfort in life and in death, in body and soul, is in belonging to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And then it has asked us what things are necessary for you to know. And remember, I explained that at the time, what things are necessary for you to confess in order that living and dying I may enjoy this comfort. And the first thing was how great my sins and miseries are. And you'll remember the Catechism has said that the way we learn our sin and misery is by the law of God. That it is the law primarily which exposes our sin and our guilt. Our Catechism has gone on and explained to us that this misery into which we have come is not something that God created us with. It's not something that God gave to us. It is something that we came into by our own sinful choice in the Garden of Eden and every day again. Because again, and I believe this was our, our message last Sunday, that we have all the faculties of mind and soul that we need to make the choices that will honor God but our mind is hostile against God. It is at enmity with God as we are in our unregenerate condition. And so not only did we choose to go contrary to God, not only did we choose the way of treason and rebellion in the Garden of Eden in our first father, Adam, but every day again we second that choice by our own sin and by continuing in that way of treason and way of rebellion. And we learned also Congregation, the sad truth that man's sin is so deeply rooted in his heart that he is entirely unable to fix himself. That sad truth that man's hostility to God is so deep rooted that he can't, you might say, change his heart. He can't circumcise his own heart uh, to, to use the language uh, that we had this morning. And so now we come then to question 10 and 11 in our catechism. As I've given, to you, given them to you there, will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? And the answer given us is certainly not. He is terribly angry with the sin we are born with as well as our actual sins. God will punish them by a just judgment both now and in eternity, having declared cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. And then question 11. But isn't God also merciful? God is certainly merciful, but he is also just. 
His justice demands that sin committed against His supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. Terrible words, aren't they, congregation? If you think this morning, and when we, when we read the law, I, I said that you can think of it as kind of a courtroom. And if we're in a courtroom this evening, and man is in the dock, then you might say the hammer has come down, right? And we read that dreadful word, cursed. Cursed is everyone. That's really the word that jumped out at me this week when I was studying this Lord's Day. Cursed is everyone. And that's why the title of this message this evening is Under the Curse. Under the Curse. Now, a few things in this catechism that I'll just pull out quickly by way of explanation before we turn to our text. You'll notice that the catechism... I I believe the translation of the catechism that we use was done by the Christian Reformed Church, the Christian Reformed denomination uh, a decade or so ago. And they really tried very hard to make the language as simple as possible, uh, which is good. That's certainly what the catechism was intended to do. But in doing so, they also removed some of the theological terms that we're used to reading. For instance, you'll notice in the answer for number 10, it says he is, that God is terribly angry with the sin we are born with. Now, children, I think you'll remember in catechism, right, that you learned the term original sin. Original sin, right? And, and you see the word origin in that word. In fact, you could actually call it that. That might even be a little bit more accurate. Origin sin. It's the sin that came from our origin. It is the sin that we, are, uh, that we have, the guilt that we have, because we are lumped in with Adam. Adam is our father, and we are joined to him as we are born. We are joined with the first Adam, and therefore we share in his guilt. We considered that uh, some weeks back. But original sin, that's a term uh, that we should, we should learn. The guilt that we are born with uh, by reason of the fact that we are one with Adam. We are joined to him. And then you'll notice that it also says uh, that the sin we are born with, as well as our actual sins. So actual sins then is another theological term that we should learn. Right? The actual sins are those sins that we commit ourselves on a daily basis. You remember that I said just, just, uh, just now uh, that uh, not only did we choose to enter into a state of treason and rebellion with Adam in the Garden of Eden, but we second Adam's choice every day again. Well, that is the, uh, what is meant then by actual sins. And there again, you know, these, these terms always change in meaning, don't they? You see the word act. And so really, again, it would almost be more accurate to say act sins. They're the sins that we act ourselves. It's not the sin that we came from our origin. It's the sin that we act. It's our own action. So original and actual sins. Then you'll notice that the catechism goes on. God will punish them by a just judgment. Now, again, I will just pull out that word just and just note that a minute. God will punish them by a just judgment, both now and in eternity. And then there's the curse, right? God's hammer falls, right? The gavel comes down and the, and the punishment is pronounced. Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. And then in question 11, but isn't God also merciful? You might say this is like the last gasp of the person who's trying to get out from underneath this curse of God that is upon him. And he cries out, but isn't God merciful? 
And, and the answer is given, God is certainly merciful, but he's also just. His justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty. Now what you have here, congregation, is something often recognized in Reformed theology, that sins are not all equally guilty. Yes, every sin deserves eternal punishment because it's committed against God. But not every sin is of equal guilt. And by that I mean, uh, we have uh, such a thing in our, in our own society as well, right? If, if I should go up to, uh, to one of you and hit you, right? That would be bad enough. That would be, that would be a, a sin, right? But if I should go out to the parking lot and there's a police officer out there and I should hit him, right? Now the, you might say the, the greater majesty, the greater, uh, um, uh, I'm not going to say value, but the higher position that he carries in society would make that crime greater than if I hit one of you. Now, you know, let's carry this even farther, right? If I should go up to President Biden and hit him, you know, I, I probably wouldn't even survive that, would I? I mean, you, boy, they would, they would, they'd be all over me in a second, wouldn't they? Because President Biden, his position is so much more high, even than a police officer. But now the catechism comes to us and says that God's punishment is just because sin that is committed against his supreme majesty... So I said that Biden would be yeah, but probably the, the person, the highest on the, on the social ladder in American society. But now think of God's supreme majesty, the eternal God, the infinitely glorious and holy God who cannot look on sin or iniquity. And when a, when a, when a man, when a woman sins and, and he strikes at God as it were, that is a sin committed against the supreme majesty of God. And because of that it is infinitely guilty it is infinitely heinous it is a sin of the of the very darkest color that you can imagine and because of its supreme guilt it is punished with the supreme penalty as you have there in question or the answer for number 11 sin committed against his supreme majesty must be punished with the supreme penalty and that is eternal punishment in hell forever and forever so that is, that is why in question and answer 10 it said God will punish them by a just judgment. And the catechism bases that on the fact that it is sin committed against the supreme majesty of God himself. Well, congregation, let's come to our, our text then because our catechism leaves us now in this awful place of being under the terrible curse of God. This, the sin of man has been laid out the guilt of man has been laid out, and now the, the, the punishment is handed down. Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all things written in the book of the law. Well, congregation, that brings me to my second point here then, and you can see that, the curse. In the language and in the thought of Scripture, a curse is something different than, than the way we really think of it ourselves. Uh, we might think of a curse as a wish that something bad would happen to somebody, right? A curse. And of course, cursing is a terrible sin. But in the Bible language, a curse is something different. And especially now, if you can remove yourself from a, a biblical worldview, and if you put yourself kind of in the worldview of the people of the ancient Near East, where they believed that there were many gods, right? Gods all over the place, right? God of this, God of harvest, God of fertility, God, you know, all kinds of gods, 
then the, the thought there was that a curse was that you are, you are sending out a wish that this God would do this terrible thing to this person. So you're calling down a curse, a, 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 a dreadful thing to happen, whatever it may be. You might pray that his crops would fail. Uh, in Psalm 87, uh, the psalmist says, May my lips, right? May my right hand forget her skill. And, and various uh, things, bad things that he wishes upon himself. But in the ancient Near East, you could call down a curse on somebody. And the thought then was that all these different deities that are in the air would, would grab onto that curse. And they were only too happy then to fulfill that curse and to visit that curse upon the person upon whom you had placed it. You might say, they would, they would, they're almost like a postman. They would take that curse and deliver it to the person upon whom you had called it. And they believed very strongly in this, that this, this really would happen. I know we, we kind of poo-poo those ideas, thinking, oh, you know. But again, if you, can, if you can put yourself in the shoes of these people, right, that, that's how they thought, and that's how they, that's how they lived. You remember that when David approaches Goliath, it says, Goliath cursed David by his gods. In other words, the thought there was that, that Goliath called on his gods to visit a curse upon David, whatever that curse may have been. And, of course, the gods are only too willing to deliver these curses. In fact, there's even uh, 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 records of, in the ancient Near East of people writing these curses on, on clay tablets or on even pieces of papyrus or something like that and then throwing them in the air. And the, and the god or the demon would catch it and deliver it to the person to whom it was against. There are other examples. Uh, perhaps when we read about Jacob and Esau, right? And we read how Jacob got the blessing uh, from, from his father, Isaac. And we read how distressed Esau was. I mean, Esau just seems completely devastated. And, and when we read that, we think, well, that seems kind of odd. Why would... Why would Esau have been so devastated? I mean, he missed out on the blessing, but he can still make a good life for himself. Oh, no, you can't have a good life when there's a curse hanging over you. All right? And in that sense, uh, Esau did not have necessarily a curse brought upon him, but the blessing that was going to be on him had been taken away and given to his deceiving, lying son or brother, Jacob. And that's why Esau is so crushed. He cries out, Father, is there not any blessing for me yet? Again, he, 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 his kind of, he has that worldview, doesn't he? And then, uh, and then I think probably many of us also have read about Balak calling Balaam to curse Israel. And we think to ourselves, Balak, really now? Uh, you know, what's one guy going to do standing over the nation of Israel and calling down a curse? I mean, do you really think that's going to do anything? Well, you're, again, you're thinking like, like we would think, like a Westerner, right? But in those days, calling down a curse on a nation would be devastating for that people. And that the gods of heaven would, would take those curses and would visit them down upon those people and would really do what you called upon those gods to do. And that's why Balak is so enraged with Balaam when that doesn't work out. And by the way, one more thing about the Balaam story, and that is the holier a man was, the more he was like a priest or one of the clergy in their, in their religious practices, okay, the higher up, you might say, he was in that, in their religion, the more effective his curse was. 
And so that if you could get a priest to call down a curse on somebody, that was especially effective. And hence, Balak calls for Balaam because Balaam had a, had a reputation for being a highly effective, uh, well, cursor, I guess you would say, a man who could, who could bring these curses down on people and it would be effective and it would work. Well, now, with that basic idea of this, of this cursing, we, we, we find that God himself, and we know that God often does this, right? He takes things from the society in which they lived, from their culture, and he puts it to his own purposes. And so now, congregation, we come to, a, to Deuteronomy chapter 27, where we, where, we, where we have this amazing scene spread before us. Actually, the scene in Deuteronomy 27 is just Moses speaking to Israel on the other side of the Jordan River, but he's going to tell them what they're supposed to do when they do cross the river. So what's going to happen then, and what Moses tells the people of Israel, is when you cross the river Jordan, you are going to come into the valley of Shechem. And you can still visit this place today. You can come to the valley of Shechem. And on the one side of the valley of this beautiful, lush valley. On the one side is the Mount Gerizim. And on the other side is Mount Ebal. You have these two mountains. And the vast multitudes of Israel were going to pass through this valley. But stop, says Moses. Don't go any further. It's time. It's time to make explicit your covenanting with God. And, and the, the scene then is God says, Now on Mount Gerizim, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin, they are to go up on Mount Gerizim. On Mount Ebal is to be Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. Half the people here on Mount Ebal and half the people over here on Mount Gerizim. And again, you have, to, you have to picture this incredible scene. And in the middle, in the valley yet, are a few men from the tribe of Levi. The rest of the tribe of Levi was up on the Mount uh, Gerizim. But the, the, the Levitical priests stayed down in the valley. And then comes the word of God to these priests. And this is what they are to say. Cursed is the man. And then that long list of curses as we read them. And every time the Levitical priest would finish, cursed is the man who makes an idol. Then all the people, amen, and amen would come from both of the mountainsides as the people responded as a, as a kind of antiphony. Amen, amen. And that amen, congregation, was every Israelite saying to the curse that God would bring, upon those people who did whatever it is that we listed there, right? The first one is the man who makes an idol or a molten image. Cursed, says God. And all the people say, Amen. In other words, yes. May that curse fall on me if I perform that action. And there's a list of those curses given. And by that curse, these people are bound together with God. You'll notice that in the previous verses, Moses says at that time, uh, in verse 9, at the end of verse 9, this day, or, or that day when you do this ceremony, this day you have become a people for the Lord your God. Now it doesn't mean that they weren't God's people before that time, but now that it's going to be very explicit, 
Now it's going to be public. And even the surrounding peoples who see this, this incredible scene will know that this is a people who belong to Yahweh, the great king, the sovereign Lord. And the people are calling down these curses upon themselves if they commit the sins that are mentioned there. So that's Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And by the way, congregation, in the chapter 28, you can continue to read that the tribes that are on Mount Gerizim call out all these blessings. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the country. And so on. Blessed and blessed and blessed. And then really what is, what is one of the most awful chapters in Scripture is the verses uh, 15, chapter 28, verse 15, and all the way to the end. Look at verse after verse. All these are curses. All the way to verse 68. And you cannot, you cannot uh, even imagine the, 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 the language. And it, it comes to an end in verse 68. And let me just read this verse to you. The Lord will bring you back to Egypt in ships. Now they had come out of Egypt. God had redeemed them from Egypt. But God says, if you're not faithful to my covenant, I'm going to send you back to Egypt. Now that's bad enough. By the way about which I spoke to you, you will never see it again. You'll never see the land, the promised land again. And there in Egypt, you will offer yourselves for sale to your enemies. In other words, you'll be so desperate that you'll sell yourself into slavery. And then, and then, again, listen to these words, these, these last words. But there will be no buyer. You will have reached such a depth. You will have come so low that you'll sell yourself as a slave and no one will buy you. Those are the curses that God calls down on his people and these are the curses that all the people say amen to and congregation the apostle Paul who of course was steeped in this thinking he takes hold of that and he says that all mankind as they are born in Adam and by their original and their actual sin are under that curse and anyone who tries to get right with God by keeping the law perfectly is still under that curse. It doesn't matter. You can't get out from under that curse. You know, sometimes you see these videos, right? Uh, children, you've seen these videos, right, of these crocodiles. And they have these huge jaws, right? And they, they lurk in the water. And when a, an antelope or a deer or any kind of animal really comes down, they lunge out of the water and they grab that animal. And you know that once that croc has that animal in his teeth, that animal's not getting away. It is a, he's gone. That crocodile will drag that animal back into the water. And there's no escaping the jaws of that terrible beast. And you know that crocodiles have some of the strongest jaws of, of all animals. Well, congregation, that's really something of the picture that we have this evening of mankind in sin and under the terrible curse of God and in the jaws of that terrible law of God. And they're under that curse and they're being dragged down under it. The law has its grip on them, says Paul. And again, it's not just that something bad might happen to them. 
But they're under the curse of God. They are ordained to destruction because of their sin. And Paul comes and he says in Galatians 3 and verse 13. And again, he he uses this language of curse to articulate the truth of the gospel. And he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. There you see, congregation, Israel as a picture of lost mankind under the curse of God. And that curse about to fall on them and to destroy them. But Paul says Christ stepped into their place and the curse fell on him. And Israel is delivered. And congregation, that brings me then to that last point of eternal punishment. Eternal punishment. Because God does not throw people into hell just because they are sinful, congregation. Yes, yes, because they are sinful. But you might say that the terrifying nature of hell is such because for a person to go to hell, they have to walk past the cross of Christ, as it were. They have to walk past the one who says that all those who are in me, all those who are in Christ, are shielded from that terrible curse. They're no longer under a curse. Christ is under the curse for them. And this helps us to understand something of the, of the terrible guilt of sin. That it's committed against the supreme majesty of God and it's a committed against the love of Jesus Christ who offers also to be their Savior and who says, there's room in me for the chiefest of the sinners. And with that kind of salvation, with the call to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ sounding in their ears, they persist in their sin and they go on to hell. I think that helps us understand something, congregation, of why God sends people to hell. You remember what David said in Psalm 51. David sensed something of this. And he says, against thee, thee only have I sinned. You see, David saw his sin as bad enough, but as made all the worse because it was committed against the Most High, the Supreme Majesty of God Himself. It's one thing to sin against a brother or a sister, but to sin against God is infinitely guilty and infinitely heinous. And therefore, it calls down the just punishment of God, the curse. Well, congregation, we only have two things then really to reflect on this evening. The curse, we under the curse, and Jesus under the curse. A congregation, we're coming in our catechism then to the close of this, of this section on man's misery. And you know, it weighs on my heart this evening that we, would, that we would see with the eyes of faith this terrible curse that lies over us. I can't think of a better way to, to, to illustrate that to you than to think of a, of a dam which is built holding back millions and millions in gallons of water. And that dam is shaking. It's cracking. 
It's about to unleash millions of gallons of water upon unsuspecting people. But congregation, when we talk about the curse of God that we are under, we're not unsuspecting. And tonight I don't want you to be unsuspecting, but I want you to see it. And congregation, this is the time for you to put down your pens, to put down your notes. You can't, you can't write this out. You can't really even grasp this just with your mind. This is something you have to feel. This is something you have to experience for your own self. And that is to see yourself as a lost sinner standing under the infinite fury of the wrath of God and that it's about to break upon you. Do you see it tonight? Congregation, do you tremble under the curse of God? When you saw that sermon title this evening, did you tremble to think of it? You know, I, I think I put Barabbas down there because in a very literal way, I think Barabbas must have felt something of the terror of what he knew was coming. That the Roman justice was going to break onto his head and crush him. And Pilate certainly felt something of it. We saw him on Good Friday desperately trying to wash his hands of it. But Pilate couldn't get out from under the curse by washing his hands. That didn't help him one particle. The curse was still there. And so you see man, congregation, dodging, trying to get out from under this curse. But there's no place to hide. Hell is open before him. And on the last day, we read that the unregenerate will still be crying, fall on us. They're crying out to the mountains and to the hills, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the, la the wrath of the Lamb. Congregation, I remember in, in Grand Rapids, I visited an older woman once. And, and she had talked about her father. Actually, it was her, her husband's father, so her father-in-law. And this man had lived a sinful life. And under the preaching of a man, I believe it was a man named Reverend Minderman, if I remember correctly, this man was so convicted and so, and so uh, uh, crushed and, and seeing the wrath of God upon him that he cried out in the middle of the sermon, I'm lost! I'm lost! Now, congregation, that's not something that we need to do. But I hope this evening that in your own heart you see the wrath of God and that you too say, I'm lost in my sins. And that if my sins were marked against me, I would be cast into hell forever and forever. And I can never say that God would do an injustice. That's really the lesson, congregation, where our instructor is bringing us with this last terrible catechism, question and answer. Because he wants us to look that truth in the face and to confront it. And to say, this is my rightful place. That that dam would break and that the fiery wrath of hell would come down upon me and crush me forever. I say, congregation, you can't, you can't grasp that necessarily. You can't write it down on paper. But I ask this evening, have you trembled under the wrath of God in these last sermons that we've considered? And also this evening, when you see what you've deserved, does it make you tremble? That's really where the instructor wants us to come this evening. Not to cry out audibly, but in your heart to say, Lord, I'm lost. I'm lost. There's no hope for me and my sins and my guilt. The congregation, for such ones, for such people who acknowledge the justice of God to cast them out of his presence forever, the second point comes in. And that is to see the person of our Lord Jesus Christ stepping under our curse. 
So congregation, I asked you to see the wrath of God this evening. But now I ask you to see the Savior. Do you see him in the garden of Gethsemane? He cries out, let this cup pass from me. What was in his cup, congregation? Curse. It was full of curse and fiery damnation from God. On the cross, he experienced it. What did he say then? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Congregation, what is hell? Hell is divine abandonment. It's God turning his back on you forever and forever. And Christ cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All the powers and all the fury of hell came down upon him on that moment and then that day. And he literally, congregation, became a curse for us. So that when we look and we see that dam about to break, when we see the fiery wrath of God about to fall upon us, we see the second Adam come. We see the bleeding Savior on a cross. He steps into our place. And their congregation, the wrath of God falls on him. And so it doesn't fall on us. He became a curse for us. Congregation, do you feel something of what your salvation means this evening? Of what it means to be a Christian today? That your place was with the damned in hell forever and forever. But the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, took all that wrath upon himself. That's why Paul says it in so many different ways. He says either you're under the law or you're under grace. Either you are in Adam or you are in Christ. Either you're trying to be saved by a broken covenant of works or you're under the covenant of grace. Christ is the shadow of a great rock. And the storm of God's wrath can't touch us when we are under that rock. Oh, congregation, how it is necessary that we know for certain that we are in Christ, that we are joined to him by a true faith. If you're outside of Christ, then you have to bear the curse yourself. You see, congregation, someone has to take the curse. Someone has to take the curse. Either you're going to take it for a never-ending eternity, or Christ took it on the cross of Calvary. And that's the gospel this evening. Congregation, do you notice how in all these sermons we seem to end in the same place, don't we? The cross of Christ and a bleeding Savior on that cross who says, Come, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. There is life in Christ and there is only death outside of Christ. That's the curse, eternal death. Well, congregation, again, we, we leave this section of the catechism this evening. But I ask you again, have you learned the lesson? The instructor has been at pains to teach us this truth, that there is no salvation in our own works. Our instructor has been laboring to cut us off from that broken covenant, from that covenant of works, and to teach us that we must be in Christ. And I don't want to leave that tonight, congregation. I don't want to leave that until I've pressed that upon you. 
Has the instructor's lessons been wasted on you? Or have you grasped that truth? Are you willing to look into the wrath of God and to see what you justly deserve? Now, congregation, if we come to that place in our life, then the catechism has much more to say to us. But congregation, if we haven't come to that place, if we resent these kinds of words, if we resent this kind of preaching, if we resent the catechism for pounding away on this week after week, must we hear so much of our sin and our guilt? Congregation, the catechism doesn't have anything else to say for you. Catechism has nothing to say to a person who preens himself on his own righteousness, who thinks that, well, even though he's a sinner, he's not that bad. Catechism has nothing to say to such a person from this point on. But for those who come before uh, the, 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 who come before God and who say, Lord, against thee, thee only have I sinned. For those who say, cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. Now the catechism has much to say. And the catechism has a rich Savior to present for a poor sinner. And so, congregation, I pray that you'll, you'll continue with me down the path of life. It's been a dark chapter that we've passed through. But I trust we've learned the lesson. And as we come into a much brighter day in the catechism lessons that stand before us, may God bless those lessons to us. And may he give us a broken and a contrite heart before him so that the seed of the gospel finds a place to land and to take root and to bear fruit to God. May God grant it for his name's sake. Let us pray. O Almighty God, great King of heaven and just judge, we stand before you, Lord, in your courtroom this evening, condemned, and to confess, Lord, that when you call out a curse over us this evening, that we have one thing to say, Amen. We have nothing to say, Lord, in our defense. Your judgments are just, and our place, too, is in the deepest hell. But, Lord, this evening we take hold of that second Adam, that greater Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ, who stands as our mediator. We take hold of him, O God, as you have called us to do in the gospel, and we find in him eternal life. Eternal death was our portion, but by your mercy, O Lord, we can find eternal life. And that Christ bore the curse on our behalf and satisfied the law so that we can be set free. Lord, I pray for each one who's gathered with us this evening. O God, I pray that we all would come to that place in our life where we acknowledge, Lord, that you are just in all your doings and that we would also come to take refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ and to find in him all that we need for soul and body in life and in death. Lord, as we continue down the path of life, I pray that you would teach us, that you would take us by heart and by hand, and that you would lead us and guide us and make us to be good students, to give us a humble and a submissive mind, to bow under the teaching of your word, to receive it gladly. Lord, I pray it for the youngest one here. I pray it for the oldest one. These truths, O Lord, we confess. Upon these truths we take our stand, and we cry out with Israel of old, Amen. And we pray, O God, that each one would say in their heart their amen to these truths. And so we commit ourselves into your hands this evening and pray for your blessing to be upon us in the coming week to the glory of your great and holy name. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.